Blog Talk Radio. having me, Brother Africa. 
Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Father Brother Anthony, we now will bring in Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome Brother Haki. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. My name is Haki Kimafi Mishoki, and I'm all about <coughs> institution building. Uh, recently, Brother Africa, I read an article essentially detailing the uh, the, uh, the gain that's been perpetuated against the citizenry. In particular, we talk about transfer of wealth from the poorest people in society to the most wealthy people in society. Buckers by a system which enables the wealthy to essentially hide their money. And one of the things that I found very interesting in this report, they talk about the fact that uh, offshore accounts account for about $3.3 trillion of the U.S. economy. Now, this is money that the economy doesn't have in terms of putting into the system, in terms of stimulating the economy to make it possible for things like jobs, things like employment, things that <clears throat> things that are vital to the overall function of society. Now, if that's not bad enough, they talk about the fact that when you talk about tax havens or the ability of the wealthy and for corporations to evade paying taxes, the uh, num- U.S. ranks number two behind Switzerland in terms of the tax haven. That's very, very interesting. Now, superimposed upon us this notion in terms just a couple of months, I'm sorry, about six months back, there was the Panama Papers in which they talked about all these wealthy corporations that were paying no taxes, and in fact, they were hiding their taxes. Now, despite the, the, um, the presentation of this paper, no wealthy person who's been dodging taxes has gone to jail or been charged with a crime. So that speaks volumes in terms of the kind of disproportionate amount of power that wealth has in society, the detriment of the overall society. And last, let me just say this. Um, when we talk about wealth, the inheritance of wealth, normally we like to believe that America is a meritocracy, that if you work hard, you get education, you work hard, you know, you achieve the American dream. Well, unfortunately in society, you know, of the top 10% of the incomes in society, 35 to 55% of their, house, their wealth is inherited, which means that people don't do anything in terms of their skills, in terms of education, so forth and so on. They're simply lucky enough to be, have been born into wealth. This has particular ramifications, you know, for working people, and particularly African people in the society. So, you know, and I think, you know, ultimately the question becomes, you know, do we have a right to exist? Well, the system says you don't have a fundamental right to exist. So if you don't have a fundamental right to exist in society, then it seems to me that you have to have institutions in order to raise that question among yourselves in terms of do you have a right to exist. Because clearly the system is saying you don't have a right to exist. And so without the institutions, we never even raise the question in terms of do we have a right to exist, and which is very, very important because given the fact that when we talk about the ever-increasing undispersed between the have and the have-nots, then people's right to exist becomes even more imperiled. So it's important that institutions ask that question and ask it now. So having said that, Brother Africa, I conclude, and I want again thank you for having me on your program. Thank you, Brother Haleke. Next we are bringing Brother Jabari. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, Brother Jabari, resident researcher. Looking forward to another insightful program with fellow panelists. As usual, it's an honor and privilege to take part. Thank you. And Father Jabari, we are bringing Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism 
from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. All right, Panthers, before we go into that segment, what's going on in your world and the community, I would like to make, take a little, make a little shout-out to our beloved sister that we miss so dearly, Sister Hattie Bonds. We understand that she is still making her recovery and doing a little better, and we just want to let her know that we haven't forgotten about you. We look forward to your return and wish you a speedy recovery. Shout out to Sister Hattie Bonds. Panelists. Let's talk about what's going on in your world and the community. Lead us all, Brother Anthony. Sure. A uh, couple of uh, things of uh, concern. Um, re- uh, last week, uh, let's see, uh, Zionist forces attacked uh, a, a mosque in Palestine. Uh, while the uh, while the membership was um, what during Salat, they uh, that that they opened uh, fire on this uh, mosque and uh, you know killed and uh, injured a, a, a lot of people that were in prayer and uh, you know and it, and it shows a blatant regards uh, disregard for people's uh, you know, uh, religious beliefs. I mean, uh, a lot of us were brought up with the uh, with, with the, the notion that uh, that a place of worship is uh, sacred or hallowed ground in a sense for the people that practice that particular religion, and it's a re- and it's a reminiscent of what uh, of um, you know what uh, what what happens in other settler colonies around the world, such as the U.S. Where uh, people, where there's a great deal of religious or ethnic intolerance, and people attack, uh, you, you know, people's religious institutions. And uh, another, uh, on an unrelated issue, uh, uh, Trump imposed tariffs on uh, on goods uh, coming from Mexico. And uh, which which will have the effect of driving up the price of any manufactured goods that come from Mexico, which since, uh, you know, corporations started outsourcing their manufacturing operations uh, a couple of decades ago includes a wide range of goods. And the implication is that uh, certain uh, certain basic items will become more expensive for the masses of working people who have a hard time, you know, being, what uh, would have the hardest time being able to afford, you know, the, 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 those more expensive uh, manufactured goods. All right. Thank you, Brother Anthony. We now we're going to Brother Haki. What's going on in your world and the community? Well, you know, Brother Africa, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> increasingly, you know, uh, terrorist attacks in the U.S. are committed by, you know, white supremacists. Now, according to the Anti-Defamation League, in 2018, 72% of terrorism committed by white supremacists. 
And uh, despite the fact that the director of the FBI warned about the rise of white supremacy and terrorism in the United States, uh, the, 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 the attempt in terms of actually monitoring um, uh, you know, white supremacists in, in terms of terrorism is actually decreased. And it's very, very interesting. Um, also, you know, one of the things for the African, and I find this somewhat problematic, um, you know, often the official line is that when they, they talk about the fact, you know, that the reason why they can't monitor white-wing, uh, white supremacy terrorism in the United States because they say there's a lack of resources to do so. Uh, interestingly enough, um, uh, white domestic terrorism, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, when it does occur, there's a, a tendency to sweep it under the rug as opposed to calling it terrorism per se, what happens is that they call it um, um, they call it uh, hate crimes. So it's a t- intentional maneuver um, um, to undermine, you know, the whole the whole uh, the whole importance of understanding the pervasiveness of terrorism society by calling it a hate crime. And the question is, when, when you do that, you do it to the detriment of people who are in fact victims of terrorism here in America. Now, one of the things is also, but it, it is true. That when we talk about you know um, expenditures you know for uh, the FBI to investigate terrorist groups, that Donald Trump has done a very good job in terms of actually you know uh, reducing the amount of money toward those kind of units that investigate terrorism. Um, now, but interestingly enough, even though they reduced the money for for terrorism for these terrorist watch groups in the FBI, they continue without the money they continue to monitor Muslims and so-called black identity extremists. So it begs the question, Brother Africa, um, you know, um, does the strategy, does it support the supposition that white, that white right-wing terrorism is the principal part of government policy? My position that it is, and that, and that when, you, or when you look at the economics and you look at the political situation in society, that clearly the only people who stand to benefit in terms of right-wing violence or racist right-wing supremacist violence is the government because these people serve as a buffer in terms of, you know, uh, Propping up a system which is fundamentally unjust, um, and and make it impossible, or make it more problematic, make it more difficult for people who want to see a more just, more harmonious society stand. So clearly, it serves the interests of the government in terms of making sure that these people, you know, are perceived in a different kind of light, not per se as terrorists, but perceived as something other than terrorists. Whereas if committed by, but if a terrorist act is committed by people of, of color. Or people are Muslim, or people, then all of a sudden it becomes front page news. So clearly, there's a political uh, dimension in terms of this whole this whole uh, propensity, you know, to solve the downplay white supremacist terrorism in America by upplaying all other kinds of, of violent crimes, even when it's not connected to terrorism. So clearly, the government has a, a vested interest in terms of protecting these terrorists. And I should also add that not only are they protecting terrorists in America. To protect them throughout the world. So clearly, uh, we got a lot of work to be done in society because none of this is going to go away anywhere. And we shouldn't delude ourselves into believing that these are isolated incidents and that uh, this whole this whole uh, 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 relationship between government and right wing terrorism is in fact of life. Thank you, Brother Haki. We now go to Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, what's going on in your world and the community? Couple of um, items of interest I want to from the city of Richmond, Virginia. First interesting item is that in regards to the city of Richmond, the utilities department has closed for a month, and there was little to no, if any, 
um, notification that they were going to do this. And as we understand, anytime you live in the city, it's important that you pay utility expenses because utilities are essential to certain de- important daily functions that people engage in. So the fact that there was no communication with the citizenry, that's a very slippery slope because if people do not know how to access, how to pay their bills or what exactly they owe, they're subject to being in- subject to having uh, increased fines that um, will escalate their bills to um, even higher levels as they're already subject to yearly increases anyway. And the other item of interest was the Commonwealth's attorney for the city of Richmond has resigned, which is interesting. Um, it is a key election, but very interesting. We look at the timing of all of a sudden. I believe his last, as of August, he will no longer be in the position. So we look at the kind of issues Richmond have. It'll be very interesting in regards to the top prosecutor who will fill in on the interim basis and who will be elected when they have the special election to fill the position. So, Bobby, can I ask you again, did he resign prior before his term was up? That is correct. Indeed, Michael Herring did resign prior to his term concluding. And I know that it is a key election year, but still the timing of it is very interesting because um, he had been in this position for 11-plus years. So it's very interesting that all of a sudden, before his term even concludes, he resigned. Yeah, that's very interesting. All right, let's go to bringing Brother Moses. Brother Moses? And I, if I could just share one more point, Brother Yes, good, Yes. In regards to Michael Herring's tenure as the top prosecutor, there are, especially when you look at economics, there's a lot of questions about what did he really do for the citizenry of Richmond, Virginia, because as Richmond becomes increasingly gentrified, given he's the top prosecutor, in theory, his work, his job is supposed to be to talk, um, really prosecute those criminals. But when you look at the kind of economic conditions that Richmond faces, and little, he said very little regarding economic justice. Whose interest was he in? And I'll stop. Leave my comments there. Hmm. Let's come back and talk about that a little bit. Okay, we won't. We with you right now, Brother Moses. Tell us what's going on in your world and the community. Well, um, it's been interesting to see the. The situation with the president uh, um, in terms of impeachment, uh, Mueller came came out and said that uh, his report did not exonerate the president, basically, and that that uh, that you know it wasn't his role to start impeachment or call a crime against the president. That that was outside of his. his authorization as a as a uh attorney for the government and um anyway he said you know basically he's putting it in the hands of congress if if there is a he said he you know basically that he had not cleared the president that's that's just bottom line and um other than that in the local area we we've we've got a situation here where the metro is um Closed down about six lines south of uh, National Airport, and uh, and they brought in outside drivers from around the country uh, to shuttle to make shuttle buses in the during the rush hour and during the day to make up for these uh, closed stations to shuttle people back and forth, and they brought in 
people who didn't know the roots, and they they uh, were supposed to be going uh, to the Pentagon, and and uh, um, they left. I think Braddock Road and areas around there going to the Pentagon and end up in Anacostia, Washington, and which is I don't know if you know anything about D.C., but that's nowhere near each other, and it just shows that um, they brought in some uh, untrained and incompetent drivers, uh, and and uh, and that has to be fixed. Uh, other than that, there's there's things going on, but uh, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Wow. So, panelists, anything y'all have heard just now, y'all like to respond to? It's open. It's very interesting. Go ahead, Jabari. It's very interesting with what Brother Moses was sharing in regards to the Metro. Now, nine times out of ten, the Metro is oftentimes a more common person's um, form of transportation. So it's very interesting all across the country you hear these nightmare stories of how there's dysfunctional public transit. And the question you have to ask, if this was something that was going to affect how the elite chauffeur to and from destination to destination, how soon would they come up with a remedy? But for when it's a common person problem, why is it that we get months and months and months before they even have an effective remedy? So that is chaotic if you have people who are doing the job and they don't even really know the function because they don't know these roads. So it's very interesting the difference in response to things when it's a public transportation issue versus physical transportation issue for those that are rich. I agree with you, Bobby. Anybody else would like to respond to that or any other issues that were raised earlier? Uh, yes, I think I think you may, uh, make that that's an interesting point you make, Jabari. That, uh, that 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 most of transportation that working people uh, depend upon uh, suffer a mu- uh, much more than though that 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 than those that that are used by uh, the wealthy, who are able, you know, who have uh, you know access to things like cars, uh, private planes, etc. And, uh, you know, it shows that increasingly that uh, that the, that the contradictions between the haves and have-nots in this society is intensifying. Well, you know, also, you know, we, 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 can't, we can't underscore enough the amount of nepotism and corruption that exists in the society. Uh, one of the things is you're going to bring in people who are totally unfamiliar you know, with the terrain that's on the bus service. That speaks values in terms of collusion, um, because the whole thing is that if one thing goes smoothly, then you, at the very minimum you have to have people who understand the terrain. In the fact, you don't understand the terrain suggests that there's connections, social political connections that exist to justify bringing in people who don't have a clue, you know, you know how to service the people in terms of uh, the, the, in terms of uh, getting around, the, navigating the terrain. So clearly, you know, it's a big, big problem, and it's only relevant, particularly when, when it comes to poor people, working class, and poor people. Because what happens to poor people, irrespective of how inferior the service may be, if it's, if it's uh, something that's uh, relegated toward the poor, then it's not really concerned in terms of quality. So you can just give them anything. It doesn't matter. So if they're inconvenienced. So if they lose their job because they can't get to work. Uh, so if they uh, miss a plane, it doesn't matter. Because, they, because the, the concerns of poor people is not a, a primary concern of those in the position of power. 
So you're absolutely correct if you talk about wealthy people in terms of, you know, um, their ability in terms of getting around. They're not going to be inconvenienced because the people who run those organizations understand that if you inconvenience the wealthy, then potentially there's a price to pay for doing that. But it's a price to pay for poor people. So unless all poor people become organized and you can exact a price or, uh, or you know, unless you can inflict, a, 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 inflict pain upon those who disadvantage you, then there's a real incentive for them to continue to, 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 to give uh, poor people sub, of, you know, um, <clears throat> um, services which is not up to par. So I think that this goes to the territory, and that's one of the problems that we're talking about. So essentially we talk about the economic system across the board, which position is that poor people are irrelevant, and they treat you as though you're irrelevant. So as long as poor people, working people, continue to abide by that, um, that philosophy, as long as we internalize and think that it's okay to be treated any kind of way, then we simply justify any and every kind of treatment, regardless of how um, poor their treatment is. So it's incumbent upon working people to stand up, to understand what the issues are, to organize, to work together, because nothing's going to stop that other than sheer organization. And that's just the bottom line. You know, Jabari, you also raised an interesting point about Michael Hearn, the, I believe, the Attorney General in, 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 the state of, in, in the state of Virginia, in terms of his resignation project for his term is up. To me, it has been very um, Brother Africa, his position is Commonwealth's Attorney, now Attorney General, Commonwealth's Attorney. Commonwealth Attorney, okay. Commonwealth Attorney, stand for correction. But that response is real, real interesting because it's typical when you talk about African politicians under this political system. It made me think of the incident that took place, I guess, about what, about 10, 12, 12 years ago, where, you know, in Congress, you get these positions of seat, seat of, of power and authority based upon your, um, your how long you have been on that particular committee. Your, um, what's the term for that? Based upon how long you have been on the Seniority. Seniority, right. And what happened was when Ron Denham, Ron Conyers, all of them was there, it ended up that majority of all these powerful seats would have been given to so-called African politicians. Well, guess what happened when they came up? They came up and changed the rules to the game on who would be head and who would be the head chair of these particular seats, only because they knew a large percentage of the people who were acquiring those seats based on seniority would be in your African politicians that have been in Congress for a long time. And nobody said a word. And Brother These Africa, kind of things unfortunately only was... happened to us. So, again, Brother that's Africa. why we say, oh, this, this, you can give your point one second, Javari. This is why we say air hope to participation in this process, in the system, is no more a sense for illusion or inclusion. Yes, go ahead, Brother Javari. Further into your point, when you mentioned names like Ron Conyer, prior to um, him being found guilty of misconduct, you're talking about somebody that was an icon in the Democratic Party, because yet again, I ask this question with the illusion that's caused by the um, confusion in terms of this two-party um, foolishness. Why is it that black uh, that black people in large feel some sense of loyalty to a party that does not have the interest at heart? So this is the party that's supposed to have the interest at heart that did it to the so-called elected officials. So if they're doing that to doing that to them, what are they going to do to you? So this clear that should have been a clear wake-up call in regards to how the rules are being made because they're not in our interest. 
All of this is just to pacify us, throw us a few bones so that we don't seek out to the conditions that are in place. You know what? If if that's not abhorrent enough, uh, the thing now, the DCCC, the Democratic um, uh, Campaign Committees, they have implemented a plan in which, you know, the, those vendors, those individuals who support candidacies, they're only allowed to support incumbents. In other words, people like AOC, uh, Rashida Tlaib, um, Omar, uh, people in Ayanna Presley, people like that. What's happening is that nobody will be paid to work with those people in the future. To, and what happens is that ensures that the only candidacies for the Democratic Party are going to be mainstream corporate type Democrats. And this is the party of so party, party supposedly of the people. And so the mere fact that the Democratic Party is is a central organizing wing is deciding that uh, they're going to make damn sure that no true progressives. Uh, get the nod in terms of even having the opportunity to run, you know, for you know for for the seats, whether it be Congress or the Senate or the Senate, speaks volumes in terms of just how um, uh, in opposition they are to the interests of the people, mass of people uh, in the society. So clearly, we understand that it's only as Malcolm X would say, there's one there's one there's, there's one party, um, you know, there's uh, two sides of the same coin. There's no philosophical difference between the two. And the Democrats have sort of sort of solidified that understanding by this latest move in terms of making sure that uh, these people who are progressive won't, won't not only not receive the funding, but not even receive the support of those in the, the Democratic Central Committee in terms of making sure that they have the opportunity, you know, to, to for visibility to be seen that should run for these offices. So clearly there's no difference between Democrats and Republicans. For those of us who believe that there's a philosophical difference between the two, then all you have to do is look at the history. Uh, ultimately, I think it comes down to community empowerment. People understand that you have to legitimize your own leadership. You have to find those people who are struggling on your behalf, organize around that basis, and do the kind of things that's going to empower you. To the, to the extent that you can bring pressure on politicians, that's fine. But even if you don't, by virtue of having that kind of organization, the sky's the limit. There's so many things you can achieve simply by organization. So clearly, you know, uh, the brothers are correct. Uh, you know, there's no philosophical difference between Republicans and Democrats. Well, talking about a narrative, I'd like to get your response to this recent Virginia, Virginia Beach mass shooting as it relates to Brother Wayne Craddock and how it is all being portrayed and how they are painting a narrative, a narrative of, um, you know, this is the worst thing that could happen and why would someone do something like this? Panelists, let's talk about how they're doing this narrative. Because it seems like, to me, this is the same old story where we create the conditions, where we create the victims and then blame them for something that we have created. So, Brother Hackey, what you make of the situation? Yeah, well, I think I think you're right. The, the narrative that's being created is only only a part of the story. Uh, also, what happens is that one of the things that the society does very well, it makes damn sure, and by controlling the narrative, it makes damn sure that people don't think on a much deeper level. If you stop and think about the fact that this brother was has a, a degree, in, he's an engineer, civil engineer, so he's not a dumb guy. He worked there for 15 years, and five years he'd been retired. 
So now they're telling us that, you know, at the time of the shooting that he retired, uh, he put in his resignation letter to retire. Then he came back later on that day, supposedly, and shut up the place. But clearly something doesn't make any sense at all in terms of what, why, is, why wasn't that, letter, that resignation letter released? Because clearly there was something going on. Uh, but also what happens with Brother African, this is something I think, you know, to some people they may seem anecdotal, but I think it's important to, to, raise, to, to, to talk about this. One of the things in the South, there's a true tradition, and that is that the more intelligent you are as an African person, then the less you are to reveal that. In other words, white folks down South are more, are more, they're more happy with those Africans who grin and shuffle and that kind of thing, uh, showing your teeth. Uh, but the moment that you're the African person exposed your intelligence and you talk with, with intelligence, that you, that you, that you carry yourself you know, with confidence, is the kind of thing that rubs Southern white folks the wrong way. And so, therefore, a lot of African people have learned in the South, you know, to simply uh, acquiesce to the concerns, you know, of white folks by acting a certain way. Well, this brother was an engineer. He's a smart guy. So my guess is after 15 years of acting like, you know, uh, you know he's a kind of airhead, he got tired of that. I think it wore on him, in addition to kind of daily uh, in, uh, insults that you have to contend with on a, on a, on a, on a daily basis because they know that, you know, as a person of color, you're opportune in terms of, employment making decent salary is very, very minimal. So they understand that. So you have to continue with a certain amount of uh, indignities and just to keep your job. So I think that if they would release that, that, that resignation letter, then we would have saw exactly what was his motivation in terms of what he did. But you're absolutely correct. The nerve that they create is never what really is going on. But keep in mind, they're not interested in giving people the real narrative in terms of what really is going on because people who, deal with the, who have to go to work and continue with these, in, these injustices uh, these uh, indignities on a day-to-day basis, it builds on people. At some point, people just explode. But, of course, the, 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 the media uh, are not going to allow us to understand the insidious nature, you know, of, of a lot of, of, of the job sites in terms of the kind of stuff that people have to continue on a daily basis. So clearly, uh, you know, if they release that resignation letter, then we'll, learn, we'll understand more in terms of motivation. So I'm just I'm, I'm, I, when I when I when I read it I, and keep in mind also this place one final thing I told you this one final thing is that also this this place that he worked at in, in Virginia Beach and now Virginia Beach is the quintessential Southern plantation and those people are very very Southern in terms of the way they see the world in other words they're very comfortable with with, they, with the way things are and if they may perceive as different they perceive as revolutionary they're going to react violently so as a consequence. What happens is that they have a situation where they have Confederate pictures, Confederate flags, Confederate um, uh, statues. They have them all there and all in one place just to sort of remind you, you know, this is the South. And so it's not, I'm not surprised that the mentality of the people working inside that building also manifests itself in terms of um, the same kind of subtle, not subtle, but the same kind of white, uh, the white, the, the, the white uh, supremacy uh, that those, those, those statues and those pictures are sort of uh, under, uh, sort of a exposed. So I think that, you know, um, and I, uh, let me just close right here. But I, I think that Brother Africa, I think you're right. The narrative is, is, is not being told. They don't want you to know the narrative. They want you to think that, in fact, this young man was simply somebody who, who was a hothead. You know, he was irrational. He was violent by nature. So therefore, he just started killing people for no reason at all. Of course, people who buy the narrative are people who don't think. If you think, you always have to understand there's always a cause and effect. Nobody does anything arbitrarily. There's always a reason behind everything. The media doesn't want people to know what's behind you know, his actions. 
I would add also to what uh, Haki stated is that the police don't, uh, all, uh, and the media don't, uh, don't, don't want people to know what really happened, which is probably why uh, 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 Dwayne Crowder was killed, because uh, they don't want to know what happened. And, um, you know, uh, you know uh, this, kind, this level of violence happens for a reason. And, um, you know, and it's something we, uh, uh, we may never know the full details of in terms of what, uh, 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 of what kind of, uh, you know, oppression he was a subject to day to day on the job. And, uh, you know, and how that and how that might have wore on him emotionally. But uh, you know, but uh, but 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 uh, but the, the the when it comes to Africans, police have a shoot to kill mentality. So you ne- so you never find a full story of uh, of the why or how you know certain events take place, and you have to try to piece them together from uh, the c- conditions that exist in that community in which you worked. And so it's very difficult, you know, to, uh, you know, to really, uh, you know, ascertain what went on. But there's more than than, than what's on the surface, I think. So, Bobby, what did you make of the brother's response in Virginia Beach and the narrative that's been presented? You know, when these situations happen, yes, there's a lot of attention drawn to how much of a tragedy it was. But the real tragedy is, why is it nobody is saying that the conditions have to change? Because these are not isolated incidents. This is a result of the culture of the cauldron of violence that is bred when we look at the United States history. We discussed recently in regards to Jimmy Carter said that no other country has engaged in conflicts more than this one has when we look at the course of history. And especially percentage wise when we look at roughly three hundred plus years of existence and you look at how many conflicts we have engaged in time and time and time again. So yet, when you have this kind of culture, nobody does anything to change it. You have these kind of things happen, and unfortunately, that's what this, we're looking at. You can't just look at um, isolated incidents and just continue to go war with me. Until you truly are critical of the conditions that enable these kind of things to happen, that's the only way you can invoke true change. And Brother Moses, your take on this incident. Yeah, I agree with what Jabari is saying about the conditions of, of the world and, and the U.S. and government and the corporations in, in carrying out this violence uh, daily. Um, I, I'm, I'm waiting to, to, to hear exactly what was in this uh, resignation letter. Uh, uh, I think that would be very interesting. I'll withhold comment until the end. Thank you. You are listening to Africa on the Move. We're in the heat. We're in the seat. We'll take the heat as we define it. We'll stand behind it. We're talking about the recent uh, mass shooting that took place in Virginia Beach. If you have any comments or questions you'd like to speak on this issue, feel free to call 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Hit 1 if you'd like to make any comments or questions. We will... Knowledge you'd ask for a number, but you know when I look at this incident, you know I said to myself, 
is really an indictment of, of the capitalist system and showing the crisis is in. You know, normally, historically, when we look at mass shootings inside the United States, it, normally, it, it is normally done by European people. I was sort of surprised when they say it was an African brother that did this. Now, my my amazement is that given the level of oppression against African people and the workers and what the workers have to face on a daily basis, why we don't have more people doing this, panelists? I think it's a natural response, natural response, an understandable one, in terms of understanding that people may go off giving the injustices that they are faced on a daily basis where other people are controlling your lives as a worker. When you have the right to determine if you can fire somebody just based on whatever reason you may want to fight them on, then you are affecting their livelihood. You are affecting their family. You are, in essence, affecting their existence. So, um, panelists, my question to y'all, why aren't there more responses like this, looking at the objective realities of the oppression that African peoples and workers face on a daily basis? I think... Um, I think fear is a major factor in terms of why uh, why Africans seem to be more, uh, uh, more tolerant of their oppression than other uh, than maybe other people would. Uh, let's see. I think you uh, one of the things you have to look at. Uh, we've been subject to nearly 500 years. Of, uh, t- of various forms of terrorism, brutality, and torture, and uh, and that, and even if we were not the direct victims necessarily, that uh, centuries of uh, of uh, tor- uh, of uh, violence and brutality and torture perpetrated against us has a psychological impact. And I think the reason why people don't lash out more violently is because uh, because because of fear. And also, a lot of times when we do react violent, violently, we, we 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 attack each other. And uh, and uh, you know, and I think until we get organized. Until we, uh, uh, you, you, you know, we we ourselves address uh, our internalized uh, psychological traumas, then this sort of thing is going to continue. But I think fear is a big factor in terms of why, you know, people don't lash out more often violently. I think I I, I I I agree with that, but there's also the, the the argument on the other side, and that is that I think to a large extent the reason why you don't find this this uh, this, um, uh, this this proliferation of, of of Africans, you know, going off in the workplace has to do with the fact that I think Africans have a stronger sense in terms of in this regard in terms of self worth. I think the moment that I think that most of us understand that our, 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 who we are as a human being is not defined by that job. I think that uh, when we contrast that with, with white America, who define themselves in terms of the kind of job they got, then I think it's much more more reticent to act out aggressively or violently. Some because you know when you take away that job from white America, in, a, in the essence, what you're doing is you you're, you're destroying them. But I think African people have I think it's a bit more of the, the, the spiritual thing in terms of not well, not necessarily formally spiritual, but in spiritual in the sense that you got the conditions that exist in the community which says that there's something other than this thing that we call life. 
and so therefore you have value. So I think people, African people sort of internalize that, and so when you're fired from the job for, for no reason, for arbitrary reason, and you're right, Brother Africa, unfortunately, you know, in, in most of these, these, these states, and particularly these right-to-work states, they can fire you simply because they don't like the shoes that you're wearing. It doesn't matter. They can fire you for anything. Uh, you can say good morning. They can fire you. It doesn't matter. They can fire you for anything. Uh, but I think that this this whole um, this whole um, conditioning process, and it was to to the extent that it, uh, it 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 glorifies the ecumenical, it glorifies you know the role of church in terms of your thought processes. I think sort of uh, mitigate uh, your kind of explosions that uh, that uh, that potentially. Um, um, that, that potentially could arise, you know, in a situation where, where African people are fired. So I think there is that fundamental difference in that spiritual understanding in terms of, in, in terms of life. So I think that accounts for why rarely do you find African people going off and killing, you know, a large number of people. Uh, so I think that, to, to, to a large extent, I think many explain why. Uh, but then again, uh, this brother was very, very educated. And so, therefore, he's much more, uh, he has much more intuitive understanding in terms of, being, you know, slights. So you say racist things to him in terms of his level of understanding that he's much more intellectual in a position to understand that what you're saying to him, what you're doing to him, is in fact a slight. And so therefore, after doing many, many years of that kind of thing, and even though with the spiritual understanding in terms of the world, uh, it's become very, very difficult in terms of maintaining one's, one's uh, perspective. Uh, given that reality in terms of the the, the consistent bombard, continuous bombardment, you know, of all kinds of slights. So I think that I think this, that this spiritual understanding will account for why African people rarely go off when in situations in, in the workplace. And that's despite the fact that we talk about uh, the kind of uh, 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 when we talk about the kind of systematic injustices that African people face, the kind of indignities that they face on a daily basis. Uh, the kind of things you had to put up with in terms of the kind of how, how you talk to, uh, what people have to say to you, blah, 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 blah. Uh, despite all of that, I think uh, the, the, the spirituality sort of makes it possible, you know, to understand that even if you lose that job, you know, that it's going to hurt, but it doesn't diminish you as a human being. That's my position on that. You know, parents, um, just now to remind me of one question Peter Tosh raised years ago in which he stated that everybody's talking about crime, but who are the real criminals? Now, we talk about victim and victimization. In this case, I think all of them were victims, and all of them been victimized, because it's, I don't think it's a, the major issue shouldn't be what a person did. It should be what were the conditions that caused him to do what he did. I think that's the real issue, to find out what are the conditions that caused him to do what he did. Brother Hackey, you alluded earlier about um, the, 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 the level of the, the education level that the brother may have had and his ability to be able to analyze, you know, uh, things going around him. Now, one of the things I thought were very important in the media is not talking about is that they said he was a, he'd been there for 15 years, uh, he was in good standing, but he did have evaluation in which they gave him a satisfactory report. Now, on the job, that may not necessarily be a good report to get a satisfactory report when you know you have done outstanding work and the report may be based upon getting the increase of pay. So I'm really wondering if you can just talk a little bit more about the possibility, what will make someone like that go off like that? 
his, 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 his residents, the people who live around him in this community, said that he was a good, they never thought he would do anything like that. He basically was a good person based upon some of the footage that I have seen. So can we just project maybe possibility, possible what really could have happened to trigger a young, intelligent, disciplined brother to go to such an extreme act? Brother Africa, Brother Africa, you, you want some analysis in terms of what goes on in society. That's essentially what you're asking. One of the things capitalism cannot abide by is a, a critical analysis in terms of how the system impacts human beings. They can have that discussion. Because they have that discussion, then all the people out here begin to understand, you know, that the kind of abhorrent treatment that they receive is part and parcel of a system which is predicated upon their uh, 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 diminishing them who they, are, who they are as human beings. And so, therefore, capitalism is simply not going to allow you to have those discussions. So you have the situation where these, where these things happen in the workplace. Of course, the intelligence they can say, well, well, what happened? Why did he do that? What, what, what was going on in this place that caused him to do that? Because that's extreme. Well, they're not going to have that discussion. They're not going to allow anybody to have discussion. That's why when you read the, when we read the, 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 the papers in terms of what, what transpired, they're very, very vague because they don't want you to understand the, the intimacies in terms of what transpired in that workplace. And that's, that's precisely the point. And this is why when we, when we talk about capitalism in terms of how savage it is, one of the reasons why it's savage is because most people will condition not to even think about it. In terms of when we talk about problems, we're taught to internalize problems. Uh, so if I have a problem, it's not someone else's problem, it's my problem. Well, you know what? Unfortunately, this, that just doesn't work that way. Your problem is my problem because it does have a, the, excuse me, the potential to impact on you in terms of your interactions with me or vice versa. So therefore, you know, what you're asking for is some analysis in terms of how capitalism adversely impacts on the psyche of human beings. Then again, that gets us to the question in terms of institutions. When we talk about institutions, you know, it's, why do you think the people in Cuba behave differently than the people in America? Why do you think the people in Africa think, act differently than the people in America? It's by and large the institutions that they're exposed to. And, and this is why people behave differently. Uh, the more negative those institutions, the more negatively the people behave. The more positive those institutions, the more positive the people behave. More, the, the, the more value they have on life is a direct reflection in terms of the kind of institutions. Those, those places which doesn't have any value for life is reflected in terms of the way people behave and their propensity to utilize violence. And so this is the whole point. So you're asking, uh, you're asking the system to self-critique itself. It's not going to do that. It's not going to do that. Because if it did that, then it would educate too many people in terms of just how vicious, how insidious the system is. It's simply not going to do that. I, I agree with you, Haki, and I would add, if you look at a socialist society like Cuba, where the people have input into the situations that impact their lives, their workplace, the people are organized, the people, ha- uh, the, the, the people have input into how the places where their workplaces are run. And there's equal pay for equal work. You don't have, uh, you, you know, things like uh, they're able to discuss, to discuss openly concerns like uh, racism or sexual harassment. And they can address those openly. You don't have that kind of space in a capitalist society. The workers don't. 
to deal with those sorts of things. And uh, and and uh, and Cuba is a society that critiques itself, which is why it has it has, it has changed its constitution several times. Uh, people make a big deal about uh, about how long the uh, uh, the, the, the uh, how the U.S. has a two, uh, over two hundred year old constitution. But the thing about it, though, but but the thing about it, though, but that's because the masses of the people never would get a chance to critique or or evaluate their social system to find out whether it adequately meets the needs of the masses of the people or not. So you're talking about a difference ultimately between a system in which the people control society versus a few, which is what capitalism is. A few people decide what what, uh, what everybody else should do and act accordingly. Okay, panelists, job well done. We're going to begin to make our transition to our next segment as we're going to talk about our theme tonight, what has changed. Our first article going to deal with this issue of what took place eight years ago in Libya where they made a transformation of genocide African people inside of their own home. We're going to talk about that and many other pertinent issues that are affecting our people communities when we come back. But right now we're going to pause for the cause. You are listening to Africa on the move.
like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. Don't be a Buffalo soldier. Yes, we were stolen from Africa. We were stolen from Africa and brought to America. Fighting for our arrival and still fighting for our survival. But if you only knew that history, then you know where we're coming from. And you have to explain to us who the hell you think we are. I hear you, Brother Bob. We welcome everyone back to Africa on the move. Right now, we're going to make our transition to what has changed as we talk about things, as we discuss various, various articles that deal with issues and concerns that are impacting our communities throughout the world. Now, when we talk about victim, victimization, and concern about people's life, well, I'm not quite sure what we really mean that. That was an article titled, Eighth Anniversary of African Genocide in Libya. Um, from this past February, there'll be eight years since a genocide process took place in Libya, where they wanted to clean out all of the dark-skinned Africans in Libya. This particular so-called um, activity has been orchestrated and planned by U.S. imperialism operating through NATO. And we're going to have the discussion about the implication of what took place eight years ago as it relates to African people in Libya. And what significance does it have on today's world and our people? Panelists, we are back again. We'd like to welcome everyone back. If you listen to this program, feel free to call in at 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and, share, and you can share your views and your comments. We, we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Panelists, from this article, you're really talking about this whole question of human rights investigations. Eight years ago, it stated that this month, this month marks the eighth anniversary of the uprising that accumulated in the imperialist assault on Libya by North Atlantic Treaty Organization, better known as NATO forces, and the killing of eight months later, the longtime leader of Colonel Gaddafi. Panelists in this article, the, the question, the, the thesis, or one of the major points for this article is that was a deliberate policy to uh, genocide Africans who had dark hue. What is that all about, from your perspective, um, Brother Zubari? What do you think that is all about? Why wait for Brother Zubari? We're going to Brother Anthony. You started us all with that, Brother Anthony. What is the um, genocide process is all about as it relates to Africans with darker hue? Okay, what it uh what it what it what it's saying is that there was an imperialist campaign uh created uh by the corporate media uh you know via you know uh, organs such as Facebook, Twitter and YouTube uh you know to uh, uh to foment um a, a demonstration against uh, uh, the Gaddafi government, and uh, and they and uh, and one of the uh, uh, the myths perpetrated by the corporate media was that uh, Muammar Gaddafi was using Africans uh, uh, to uh, you know to kill so-called peaceful protesters. 
and uh, and uh, and uh, suppressing the truth that some of these so-called peaceful protesters were agents trained by British intelligence and the CIA. And uh, what uh, what what and uh, what is um, what is uh, what has happened is that imperialism exploited uh, internal contradictions inside Libya among its various ethnic groups. And uh, Africans have been in Libya throughout its entire history. As a matter of fact, the first people uh, to live in uh, uh, what is called Libya today were the Berbers. And they have a very long history inside of Africa. And uh, it it was later invaded from the east by uh, people from Asia and Europe. And, um, you know, so uh, this thing about pitting, uh, so those contradictions had had always been present uh, throughout Libyan history. And what uh, imperialism did was exacerbate those contradictions uh, to the point where they used that to carpet bomb Libya and destroy that society. And uh, and also uh, create uh, the, the the instability that led to uh, the imposition of uh, the reimposition of slavery in uh, in in Libya, and also caused instability throughout uh, no, uh, northern and western Africa uh, as a result. Of uh, you know this genocide of war, brother. So actually, let me just, I mean, yes, good, brother Bobby. Yes, and I wanted to um, add to one of Brother Anthony's points in regards to media. What we got to understand is that that is going to be a key tool used to distort the narrative. Because I can think of at least three examples recently where Western media have had films where. They have engaged in destabilization, and they use um, motion pictures to paint the picture as if they were some kind of savior. Hotel Rwanda is one, um, and then there was another movie, Tears of the Sun, that I believe dealt with the Congo conflict, where yet again they're painting the people who created the destabilization as heroes. And then I'm sure there's some other examples as well. But the thing you got to understand, given the relationship that Hollywood has to those that go over to invade these countries in Africa is very easy to distort the narrative because we live in a world where if we can see it um, and it's presented to look realistic enough as fiction, people will buy into it and believe it and spend big money to endorse it, either endorse it, support it, or add to it because of what they've been conditioned to believe. Because when you talk about the kind of method used to... um, for well, this type of mission going place, it's a reflection of what people see on a day-to-day basis in terms of Western society, in terms of how Western society is not about creating peace and stability, but it's a matter of how can I increase my wealth by any means possible. Nothing is off limits. You know, Brother Haki, I thought it really interesting in terms of looking at the type of tools that they use as Bobby talked about mass media the type of used to create this um, scenario where they could genocide 
uh, African people in Libya, Adaka Hu, they talk by the road of Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Now, what does that tell us about these uh, these particular mass media tools that will be willing to um, go into countries and deliberately create all kind of misconceptions um, of the realities of what's really taking place? How should we view Twitter, Facebook? Are these instruments uh, of U.S. imperialism, Western imperialism? Of course, of course. But I think Facebook, Twitter. Of course, yes, they are tools of imperialism. But but I think in this particular situation in Africa, I don't think it was a factor. Uh, I I I think you think you need something to think about what happened in 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 Libya at this time. Um, Western nations told the 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 uh, totally uh, by nature of NATO started spreading this propaganda on on in Libya, which says that African. Uh, which says that African, um, uh, Af- my utilizing dark black Africans or dark skinned Africans for the sole purpose of eliminating his, his opposition. Now the, 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 the irony is that these 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 thirty thousand Africans who lost these thirty thousand dark skinned Africans who lost their lives live in an area which is far from Lib- far from Tripoli, which was Takwa, which was t- far from Libya. So it tells me that this this. Initially, this drive, but the desire to eliminate darker-skinned African people in Libya, was something in which those people, uh, 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 in and outside of NATO, had a vested interest in doing. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about not just um, actually NATO itself in terms of elimination of African people. In, in part, they did. To a large extent, what we're talking about, we talk about Arab, Arab militant militants, who are actually responsible in terms of the elimination of 30,000 African people you know, uh, in that particular uh, part of Libya. So this, this, this notion that, in fact, that certain people are Muslim by birth and certain people are not is something which I think we've we got to be honest about and say that this is a problem. Uh, we also talk about Arab nationalism, which is, which is, which is, which is true, but we had much deeper than Arab nationalism is kind of hatred based upon skin color. You have a lot of people who, quote, unquote, who call themselves Muslim who even speak Arabic, who refer to darker-skinned Africans, whether they're Muslim or not, refer to them as Abid, which is a slave. And so, therefore, we see the implementation of slavery, you know, in Libya. And they're not just enslaving Africans who are darker-skinned in Libya, but any African who in, 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 who's coming to Libya trying to flee to Europe, they're also enslaved. So clearly, this the skin. This is the biggest question around skin color. Is something that we have to deal with. And I'm not going. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not one who says simply because someone is a Muslim they're okay with me. I don't I don't no I don't I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. If you're a Muslim and you believe in the humanity of all human beings, irrespective of skin tone, then we're brothers. But if you're one of those who think that because you're light that you have a, a, a God given right to exploit or oppress those who are darker, hell no. I don't support that kind of craziness. But nonetheless, it's something that we have to start dealing with. And this is a peculiar problem. One of the things about Mubarak Gaddafi, Brother Africa, is that one of the reasons why he refused to not interact with Arabs because of the racism. This is one of the reasons why he refused to, he didn't want to interact with them. He said much rather interact with Africans because Africans were much more self-assured, much more confident in terms of who they are, who understand the overall sake of humanity, whereas Arabs are only concerned with those issues that impacted Arab concerns. Well, if Arabs are only concerned with what impacts Arab concerns, then why do you think these Arabs want to defend this, the whole question around Africa's right 
for 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 a scientific socialist state. They're not. They don't see that as a benefit to the Arabs. They see it as a benefit to Africa, and so therefore they're not likely to support that. So now, do I know? Don't get me wrong. I do understand those Arabs, those Arabs in the past who embraced Pan Africanism. I, I do understand that. But as a group, I think we can dis, we can simply dis, dismiss this notion in terms of this kind of prejudice, this kind of bigotry that exists among those light-skinned Arabs uh, who see themselves as somehow uh, a quintessential Muslim, and if they happen to be a darker skew, then they can't be possibly be uh, they can't possibly be a, uh, an Arab. So that's a real problem. And even when you look at a place like Saudi Arabia, those darker-skinned brothers and sisters would refuse to even acknowledge their African roots. They would not say that they're, they're Africans. They won't say it, no matter how dark they are. That's what the values in terms of this kind of mindset that Islam would say is that it's not okay to be African and Muslim. So we have to confront this craziness. And I, I agree with you that Western media played a big part in terms of facilitating this, facilitating, uh, this confusion you know, by use of social media. They did. It played a big part. But I think the actual action itself, in terms of actual determination to actually carry out the killing of African people, you know, in a place that's far from Tripoli, far from the fighting, speaks values in terms of his mindset among so-called Arabs who position is that they're superior to African people who have dark skin. So I have a fundamental problem with that. You guys can respond to that if you will, but that's my position at that. And so I concur that media does play a big part in terms of disseminating propaganda. That's what it's all about. That's, that's what it does. Um, the CIA, National Security Agency, spend billions of dollars in terms of disseminating information that's false. That's what they do. That's their job. But the mere fact that these African, these, these so-called Arabs embrace this notion that, in fact, the killing of darker-skinned African people was justified speaks values in terms of this kind of Arab nationalism that exists in the mind of a lot of these people who say they're Arabs who are, who are fundamentally at odds in terms of African liberation. So that's my position, and I close with that. Well, for me, I think we got to be very, very careful in terms of the dynamic between the Arab-African struggle. Because for me, when you think about the Arabs in the context of a people, I still see when the class, when the class aspect, the African people have to address their over problems. Uh, I don't see them as outside force, us versus them. I think we have to fight and battle that one out to get a better understanding of the dynamics of the two call two entities in terms of how we view it. But I will say this, uh, Brother Hackey, in terms of looking at uh, Facebook or what have you, if people go on Facebook, Twitter, and call for a strike, call for a uh, protest, call for a overthrow of a Western country, do you think Facebook will allow that kind of information to be facilitated? I mean, we can look at recently what they have done to Louis Farrakhan. So, you know, I'm you know, I'm just saying, you know, when you look at these two, you got to be clear, like I said, we got to be clear in terms of what they are and recognize its limitation. But let's continue to move forward. But Brother Moses, read this article. What were some of the things that um, came to your mind as you read this article that you think of significance? Well, I think the historical development of the country is, is in terms of uh, the Arabs and the, and the darker skinned Africans and uh, the class struggle in in that from that viewpoint uh, contributes to this. Uh, the racism is 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 uh, 
profit driven ultimately uh or uh, a more privileged sector of society or whatever trying to dominate another sector and uh but it's whipped up by by western powers and western interests uh whipping it up uh, i remember during that period of time when jesse jackson was talking about how Gaddafi was killing his own people, bombing his own people, et cetera. The media just, just you know, played played uh, played everybody uh, against the Africans and in Libya, and uh, and to the detriment of Africans in Libya, and, and this genocide was able to take place, and there was never really any accurate reporting on it, but the story. The story is just coming out these years later. Uh, there's been some clarity about what's really happened. Uh, it's an unfortunate situation. Uh, uh, I don't know what else to say. I'll, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Okay. Brother Anthony, what has changed yeah. in terms of looking at how they use the descriptive words of he's killing his people? He's solving his people. The people are against him. They may find opposition in less than one percent. Then it'll create the the people is against him. This is this seems to be a universal tactic that they have been doing throughout the world. This seems to be the same thing they're doing in Venezuela. Same thing they want they've been trying to do in Cuba. The same thing they're trying that they did in Syria. How long will it take before yeah. people can realize these are the same games they have changed. They have um, played over years, over years, over years. What has changed? You make a good point, Brother Africa. And uh, the what the only way to change that is through political education and permanent organization, permanent mass organization, and uh, and uh, people. The masses of the people have to be organized into a mass independent political party guided by a revolutionary ideology. And uh, and that is what Africans have been lacking for years. And uh, what, uh, what Pan-Africanists have been trying to correct for decades and uh but it's a it's a difficult task because of the relentlessness uh uh, uh of the one percent and uh and uh, what imperialism does uh, a very effective job of with their propaganda is they will exploit the internal contradictions that exist in the society they're trying to gain control over. And uh, and pit uh, what, what one sector of people against another. Uh, and uh, as you indicated, Brother Africa, it runs deeper than skin color. But uh, because of Libya's history, uh, class contradictions and uh, and ethnic hue tend to coincide. Uh, just uh, l- 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 uh, you know, like they did in the U.S. for a while, but. Uh, but but the problem is ultimately, uh, you know, uh, uh, because of um, uh, you know backward b- bourgeois uh, ideas, 
people who uh, who, who have a, uh, who might have a, a bit more European ancestry feel that they're superior to people who who, who don't who do not have that, and uh, that's what was exploited in the case of Libya. And uh, and uh, let's see. And I think this p- uh, paper points out the major role that the corporate media played in that. But what uh, but but what uh, what is needed also is a deeper study of Libya's history and how those uh, internal contra- contradictions that imperialism exploited had emerged. Not to beat a dead horse, but I have to point this out. Those, those Africans who are fleeing Africa in an attempt to get to, the, to, get to Europe uh, by using Libya as a stopping point, irrespective of their education, many of them find themselves you know, uh, enslaved. It has nothing to do in terms of class. It has to do with the fact skin color, pure and simple. They're not. They they could care less whether they are PhD or master's degree or whatever. It doesn't matter. Their skin color is dark. You know. Therefore, you're 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 subject you're subject to be enslaved, and to be sold. So clearly, you know. I mean, I understand your point. I mean, and I I I, I understand your point in terms of question around class, but also we can't we can't lose sight of the fact that there's a history in place. And we're not just talking about Libya, by the way. We're talking about most of North Africa where that happens. And nobody wants to talk about it, but we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. Uh, and, and even in Iraq, I recently read an article where they're talking about the fact that um, they interviewed his brother, and his brother, was, you know, and he's, he's African. He, he's, but he's born in Iraq. He's an African, but he's born in Iraq. Uh, and the kids refer to him as Abbot or slave. So clearly the kids are getting that from somewhere. And so this notion in terms of skin color adequately defines who you are as a human being I think we can't run, we, we can't hide from that. You know, there are Arabs out here who don't identify. I mean, even I talked to the brother last week on the phone. The brother said, even right here in America, there are those Muslims from the Middle East who not, were not associated with Muslims in in America. So clearly, there is there is there is the question in terms of skin color, in terms of who people are based upon skin color, has to be a permanent feature in terms of people's mindset. Because it, because when you look in terms of interaction between those people from the Middle East and those people who are darker skin, it simply doesn't happen. So how do you justify? How do you explain someone from Sudan who speaks Arabic, <coughs> who speaks fluent Arabic, who's not recognized as, as a real Muslim, even though they all their life they've been speaking Arabic? There's no justification for that other than to say that they're being perceived as something other than an Arab. And what is that based upon? It's based upon what they can see. That's skin color. Mm. So the question of class, even though that that on some level that's relevant, but in, in the sense that we talk about the the, the we talk about the, the holistic nature of this of this of this kind of event, then clearly we got to we got to conclude you know, that that color that skin color or the implication of skin color has a great bearing in terms of the way people behave, the way people interact or don't interact. So, I, so, so my whole point is that you know when we talk about what's happening to Africans in North Africa, if we're concerned about the plight of Africans in the continent, then we got to be just as concerned about the plight of Africans in North Africa. So, you know, that's that's my only point. So, you know, if you guys hey, can respond I, to that, I, I, I'd be happy to listen. 
Yes, I recognize your point, Brother Hackey, but I think it's clear as we argue we argue about the presentation of history. I understand that history. I don't come with the position of seeing Arabs as the outside entity of, of, of being an African. What I'm saying is their mothers, at best, their mothers were Africans. They, we are all of the same group of people. There may be some distinctions. I don't see them as outside forces. We got to fight this among ourselves. They're still part of the African family. I think the premise, I think I hear you saying, you view them as the outside of, of the African family. I don't. Because I understand historically, even when you talk about the Middle East, all that stuff, there were still extensions of African people. And most of the time when we talk about Arabs, we talk about, you know, as you stated, you alluded to, the language is one feet. They, that's how they identify themselves on the language preference. But in terms of biologically, historically, they are the same, the same blood of African people that we call Africans have. They are Africans. They can identify themselves as something else. But that's the battle that we have to fight among our family. They are still part of the family. That's the way I view it. And we got we write. Right. We got to have that Africa, discussion. And Brother yeah, Africa, that's fine. And my point, I'm not saying that they're outside of outside of the family. I understand who they are. I understand who they are. They may not understand who they are, but I understand who they are. I understand when I look at them, I'm looking at an African person. I understand that. But what I'm saying that that aside, we have to deal with the, the whole the, the reality in terms of their interactions with African people on the continent. That kind of humiliation, kind of degradation, that historical wrong that they committed against African African people, we got to keep in mind. That started with the Arabs. Not the West. That's not with the Arabs. That mindset has to be challenged. You know what I mean? That has to be challenged. You know, if we can get them, if we can get them to see that 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 their roots also go back to Africa, then that's good. I'm in favor of that. I think we should. I think we should point it out. But I think that the kind of injustice that they inflicted upon African people who happen to be darker skin, I think it has to be confronted. It doesn't mean that they're outside of the family. It simply means that it has to be addressed. Just as we're critical of the West in terms of the expectation of African people, hell yes, we got to be critical. We got to be we got to be critical of the kind of exploitation Arabs commit against African people. There's no justification in the world for African people being in bondage, sold, and slavery today. You know what, brother African? Let me say this, and I close. I have a lot of respect. I have a lot of respect for 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 the, for, 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 for the Hindus in, 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 in India. They at least acknowledge that they got a problem with skin color. They got. They got. They, they just say, "Well, you know what? We're, we're, you know, we're messed up as a people psychologically, and we know that. We're caught up on the skin thing. We do. We think white is better, and anything dark is bad. We do. We're messed up, and we're trying to remedy that. But the only way they can remedy that is to consciously talk about it, and and and, and, and to, I mean, to actually gain some discourse. We have to get these Muslims, these Arabs, have to do the same thing. You have to acknowledge that what you're doing is wrong. That is wrong." You know what I mean? You have to acknowledge that. Otherwise, if you don't acknowledge it, then you continue that uh, practice. So that's the only point I'm making, Brother Africa. I'm not saying we're not the same, same people. Of course we are. Of course we are. I mean, that's just that's, 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 that's not the issue. So for me, that's not the issue. Go ahead. Finish your point. Finish your point. Go ahead. I'll just close that, Brother Africa. That's, that's my point. I, I agree with you. We are the same people. But the mere point, mere point, mere fact that they think that they're somehow different, that, sets, that somehow their skin color sets them aside from being African, I think it's that we have to have that struggle. That's all I'm saying. But in the interim, and we I, certainly have I'm not when we in see the injustices. Yeah, I'm not in, in opposition. Go ahead. Huh? Go ahead. 
when we, when we see this injustice, when we see these injustices, it has to be pointed out. That's the only point that I'm making, brother Africa. I mean, that's my view. Point is noted. Point is noted. Point is well taken. Um, brother Anthony, panelists, one of the things in the scheme of things in this article, I think we need to be aware of, is how to continue want to redefine history and make it that reality. And I'm speaking in reference to earlier. Um, I think it was high key alluded to the gentrification process that took place in Libya, intentionally to make sure they wiped out 30,000 Africans, a dark hue, that was in a certain city inside of Libya. They made sure they totally wiped them out. Now, what I'm saying in terms of how the West wants to continue to, 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 to re, rewrite and redefine history, and I'm talking about in this narrative where they want to make the world think, as of today, the present reality Africa, North Africa, always look like the people that we see today, which they have always tried to put in folks who look closer to European features of light. Well, you know, historically, even North Africa did not have the same kind of genotype of features that we see today versus what it looked like. So what do y'all make up, what do you make up, Brother Anthony and the rest of the panelists, of the historical significance why there was a drive to take out the whole city because they were exclusively Africans of dark hue. Is that a continuation to want to make sure that they can paint a picture and keep Africa divided between the North African, the northern part of Africa, and the southern part of Africa based on our phenotype of looking? Brother Anthony and yeah. Panelists, I, like I to think so. On. I think that is an attempt to do that, but... Uh, let's see, but uh, something, uh, and I think um, even this paper doesn't go into enough, but the thing about it, though, there's been, in the case of North Africa, a long history of uh, of Africans mixing with Europeans and Asians. And, uh, you know, as a consequence of history, at, uh, Northern Africa uh, was invaded several times during the course of its history. It is not an accident that uh, that you have different hues of uh, of Africans in the, in the northern part of Africa. Uh, it was uh, let's see, uh, the Hyksos invaded it in, in ancient times. Uh, later on, the Greeks and the Romans. And um, and, uh, and 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 Africa in turn also parts of Africa also invaded Southern Europe. So uh, the Mediterranean is kind of like a, a zone of confluence, as is Western Asia. But uh, uh, but 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 uh, to, to make a short uh, a complicated story very short. Uh, there's been there's been this long history of uh, invasions, human trafficking, and exchanges between Europe and Africa, uh, particularly that portion of Africa, more so than other parts. But as uh, but but uh, you know but uh, as uh, you know Haki alluded to uh, earlier. There was a history of, uh, you know, uh, 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 of slavery coming from Africa into uh, Western Asia, the so-called Middle East. But uh, let's see. But uh, you know, and uh, but but that uh, but that 
contributed to make up that Africa that Northern Africa has presently. Okay, panel, for we make our next transition, any other final thoughts or issues you'd like to raise with our listening audience and listening world a significance of things that you may have taken from this article. The mic is open. If not, we're going to pause for this yeah. cause. And we'll be, yes, go uh, ahead. Brother Africa. Brother. Okay, go one ahead. Point point like, one point, critical point. This invasion of Africa took place under under the authority of uh, U.S. president of African descent, and uh, and I think that's a significant point that it was uh, that it was under uh, you know an African figurehead that this took place. So uh, I say that to that we have to be aware. Of the anti people amongst us, you know, during the course of the struggle. In other words, those Africans that will, uh, you know, sell out other Africans, you know, for uh, uh, for, for for mere pittance. Thank you, Anthony. Anyone else would make a final point on this article? Hey, panelists, we're going to pause for this cause, and it's a very serious issue. And we complicated relationship between Arabs and Africans, and it's an ongoing struggle in some kind of way. We're gonna have to work this thing out. We'll be right back. You listen to Africa on we the move. To Africa on the move. This is our first live broadcasting show. It's called. I watched 
the basis of him going publicly and acknowledging that this is what they do. What the what does that say about the state of the mind of people at this point in time inside America as we continue to listen to information that are given by and from the Central Intelligence Agency, Brother Anthony? Yes. Well, uh, the U.S., like any, like all the other settler colonies that exist in the world, including uh, the Zionist state of Israel, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, they will that they will do whatever it takes to maintain their power and domination over other people's uh, land and t- land and resources. And uh, the U.S. has a long history of doing this, and most uh, recently, over the last uh, seven decades, has been been using the CIA to spearhead this effort to control and oppress other people and uh, and other lands around the world. And as this article shows that uh that a lot of uh, a, a lot of people have been have been killed as a result of CIA, the CIA's activities. Brother Haki, why should we give this institution any credence to telling the truth when they are on the record publicly is this is what they do, lie, cheat and steal? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, you know what? You, you, you certainly got to give it to Pompeo. I mean, he actually told the truth. I mean, that in of itself is extraordinary. Uh, yes, uh, he merely underscored what they do. I think the mere fact he's at the Texas A&M University, which is a hotbed of CIA activity, uh, he was just he was just very very comfortable in terms of talking, you know, exposing the truth. And when the piece talked about the fact that those in the audience laughed and, and, and laughed about it, speaks volumes in terms of the, to the extent that the that you got people in society are willing to uh, uh, engage in any level of destruction, any level of violence, in terms of so-called so-called achieving longevity. Of course, the irony is, or, or the fallacy is, that this longevity they're talking about simply can't be sustainable. But it doesn't matter. And during the interim, well, unfortunately, what's going to happen is you're going to have lots and lots of people who are needlessly going to lose their lives out of this um, fictitious desire uh, in terms of uh, in terms of pursuit of longevity. Uh, so clearly, you know, uh, he, he's telling the truth. And so when you talk about lie stealing, lie stealing and cheating, uh, then you, you allude to Brother Africa, you talk about that's what America Center is about. And, and, and that is precisely in a nutshell, lie, cheat, and steal. So when we talk, as far as credibility is concerned, nobody should be, uh, nobody at this point should, should be naive as to, to think that the, uh, the CIA is, a, is an organization that's, that's dedicated toward the truth. It's never been, it was designed to. In fact, they got policies to ensure that this kind of uh, this behavior, this kind of violent behavior, this kind of uh, criminal behavior, is not only justified but it's codified into law. And so, therefore, if you're going to be a part of the CIA, then you have to you have to play that game. Then you have to go along with whatever they do. There have been those who, who who actually stood up and said, "Listen, I'm not I'm not a criminal. I don't see myself as a criminal. What you're doing is criminal, and I'm going to expose it." Those people have paid the price by being sent to prison. But nonetheless, uh, there are some individuals who are principled who understand that fundamentally what the CIA stands for is, is fundamentally wrong. 
but to, for anyone to trust the CIA, to think that as a noble institution, is someone who doesn't understand anything about the history of America. And Brother Zabari, they are training the U.S. military, killing the soldiers. Well, this is what you must do. You know, this um, one thing ahead, I took note of, you got to give it to Pompeo. In regards to what he was sharing, he picked a very indoctrinated audience to share this particular message. Because when you look at the kind of politics in that particular region, they're very pro-Republican. And long as the Republicans are the ones spewing the propaganda, they're going to drink the Kool-Aid. So it's very interesting he chose to deliver this message at Texas A&M University, a school that is all pro-capitalism, especially when we look at the kind of money they put into athletics and things of that nature. So doing that, he knew that there was a, this was a place where if, if there was going to be any resistance, it's going to be little to none. So you got to understand that's something that's very key, and he understands this as the election is forthcoming. What better way than galvanize the base but go somewhere where you know that you're going to have their support and they're going to vote for you in droves. So it's very interesting in terms of what he was saying. No matter how true it was, it's very interesting. This is a particular audience that just was going to listen to him, wasn't going to say, um, wasn't going to speak to the contradiction of the reality versus um, what they claim to advocate. Brother Moses, once you read this article, how do you compel what came from this article in terms of deception and the role that the Central Intelligence Agency plays in terms of undermining governments? In this article, they talk particularly about the role of what they have done to Central America countries historically. How do you compare that to the so-called scheme or the so-called Russian interference in American election today? Well, the Russian interference is a joke. I mean, the U.S. is all over the world scheming and conniving and trying to influence people to have their interests carried out. And, um, I mean, I think that lately the the Soviet, the uh, the the U.S. president is talking about Brexit, and uh, he's trying to get the conservative party leaders to be the leadership of Britain. And I mean, so I mean, there's there's no end to what the U.S. would do if, in terms of carrying out its interests and uh, lying, stealing, cheating through covert activities. It's just that's just the the routine, regular standard operating procedure. Um, they've done it in Latin America and and um and uh and throughout the the world. And so this this is you know, Pompeo is just recognizing, you know, what's going on and uh he chose an audience that would buy it, I guess, uh, um there is no there's no media coverage of this, uh you know, there's there's no this bird basically hush hush and uh go on, you know, as if it was normal just normal talk. I think it's outrageous. Thank you. Brother Hackey, isn't he being consistent with the American narrative of what it means to be American that he is to lie, to cheat and to steal? 
<laughs> is, it, is it consistent with the American narrative? Of course. Of course. The, the, the one thing is that, you know, because we don't engage in separate critiques, we, engage, we, you know, we, we, we do all kinds of things that are hypocritical, and we're comfortable with it. In fact, we get upset when people call us to our hypocrisy. We don't have a problem in terms of being hypocritical. It's just don't, just don't call us on it. Uh, so he simply mirrored the, 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 the American mindset. Uh, this notion that normally when you say lie, steal, and cheat, most people, we, 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 it has negative connotations. Well, in the context of America, those things have positive connotations. Think about it. The CIA was, was spy on Europe. It's, it's allies, England, Germany, France. It's a spy on them. When they get caught, they tell them, okay, we made a mistake. It won't happen again. And then the next day, they, they spy on them, continue to spy on them. So, so, so it's, it's like, you know, this, 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 this notion that, you know, that, uh, that, that we are entitled to do it, the hell we want to do when we want to do it, irrespective of, of, of the morality of it all, uh, is something that's very much part of the uh, American psyche. And so this notion in terms of, you know, um, you know, right and wrong, there is no line of demarcation. Everything is expedient. Uh, you do whatever you have to do as long as you deem it justifiable. So, so we look at the population, we look at in terms of the fundamental uh, suffering of the masses of people in America, and you wonder why the masses of people don't understand that they're being manipulated and exploited. Because they can't because they have been indoctrinated in terms of the American way of seeing things. So in effect, their value system, the working class value system, it's the same as the value system of the people who exploit them. So they don't see a problem with that. They have a problem with people like us who actually say, you know what? You've been exploited, you've been used, you've been abused. Listen to this, look at the economic political parameters. Look at what's happening. Everything they're doing is geared toward empowering the, the 1% at the expense of everybody else. They're saying that the 1% have a right to exist, but they're saying that we don't have a right to exist. And as a matter of fact, they're trying to create ingenious ways to destroy us. Now, why would you as a working class person or African person, why would you support that? Why would a black conservative sing the praises of America when America is dedicated to the elimination of African people? And so when I say the eradication of African people, it's not her perfectly. I'm not, I'm not just saying that simply for effect. I'm saying that because when you look at statistically, when you look in terms of infant mortality rate among African population, lack of opportunities in terms of workplace, shelter, uh, homes, when you, when you look at all of these socioeconomic factors, then clearly we're, we're a distressed community, which means that because we're so distressed, means that it makes our, our, our destruction that much more palatable, much more easier for people in positions of power. So why is it that someone who's part of an oppressed minority will sit there and defend the people who are trying to kill you? Other than to say that people who think like that have internalized these American values of lies and cheat and don't realize that those same values are something positive about them. Only in American context of lies and cheat is a good thing. This is why the audience in Texas A&M applauded, because they saw it was a good thing. Most people will be embarrassed. Most people will be embarrassed. To even acknowledge, you know, our life and cheat. But only in America could such a such a thing, such negative ad, um, um, adjectives, could be defined as something positive. Brother Anthony, want to hear your take on the four pillars of being American? You must lie, you must cheat, you must steal, and then one major one they left out, and that's kill. Let me hear your response to that. That narrative. It's true, especially a, a, a careful examination of U.S. history in terms of how uh, of how the United States came to existence will show that to be true. 
they uh, uh, that they, they, they lied, they cheated, they stole, and they killed. Uh, and um, you know, and the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere and Africans are suffering to this day because of it. So, Bobby, your response to this article and the final thoughts. Okay, well, I'm waiting for Bobby. Brother Moses, any final thoughts on this article? Um, I think the article speaks for itself. I mean, it's, it's such a blatant uh, indictment of the CIA. I mean, to anybody who has any political consciousness, but you know, the, you know, we've been dumbed down by the press and the media, and so it it it, it goes under the table, uh, so to speak. I mean, it, it makes it doesn't make no. There's no noise being made about it whatsoever. Thank you. Hey, brother Africa. Okay, brother Africa. Yes, brother, brother Africa. Go ahead. You know, uh, Pompeo. It's interesting because Pompeo talks about the American experiment. This is very, very fascinating. If you call, if you can recall, uh, George Bush father talked about devolution. He talked about the fact that in order for the ruling class to maintain control, all of these rights and liberties that we're extending to the American citizenry have to be uh, rescinded. We have to get rid of all of that. But otherwise, if we create a just society, then it erodes our power and our influence. And so, therefore, we want power and influence at all costs. So, therefore, the only way we can keep power and influence is to make sure that the, all these rights that people enjoy will be eliminated. Now, Pompeo comes out and talks about the American experiment. It's interesting. In other words, what he's talking about, the fact that, you know, that they are, they are, they, their position is that they're so clever, they're so, so um, strategically erudite, that they can create a situation where they screw people and by virtue of using the media, convince people that everything is fine. And you stop and think about that, the American experiment. Not only in terms of their ability, in terms of deceiving people in America, but their ability to see people around the world who think America is a great place. And so people are literally talking about die trying to get here, not understanding that once you get here, it's not what you thought it was. So clearly, this American experiment that he talks about, you know, they are very cognizant of. They are very cognizant of. So when you talk about the, ex- the willing exploitation, uh, the kind of duplicity that they employ in terms of tricking people, or the kind of propaganda they utilize, they're aware of the successfulness in terms of the propaganda. It's an experiment. He's telling you it's an experiment. We just want to see how, how well we can keep you people divided, confused, and dumb. So you never come to the realization that things have to change because in your mind, everything is, is, is perfect. So they actually create um, – um, they, they actually created um, – what, what is that, that term I always say? And I can't even – I'm drawing a blank here. But anyway um, – they they actually created uh, the perfect matrix. They actually created the perfect matrix in which people perception of reality has nothing to do with what's really going on. The perception is just that a perception. It's in their head, but to them it's real. And so he's laughing. He's saying to them, "Wow, how good are we to actually be able to just trick these people, millions and millions of people in this country and around the world, actually trick them to make them think America is something it's not." That's deep. That's deep. But you know what? Unfortunately, as much as I like to say that the experiment is failing, uh, on, 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 on a much deeper level, Brother Africa, I got to say, 
they're doing a very good job in terms of confusing the people in the society. They're doing a very good job, and they're doing a very good job confusing people throughout the world. So it's going to take some time in terms of people. I think in the huh? example you just said, you also can apply the same thing that you just said to how well they made the whole world by into the illusion that, that a piece of paper with a little green white man on it, they call it the American dollar, really has a value. Exactly, exactly. Right. You create that perception. So people are willing to die for that piece of paper. People are willing to allow themselves to be exploited. People have been able to put up with anything in terms of pursuit of that piece of paper. When reality, all it is is a piece of paper. The real power doesn't come from the paper. The power comes from people working together to create. That's where the power lies. But they've got the world thinking that if you've got to have this piece of paper, then you know about it. So people are killing each other in, in, in pursuit of that piece of paper. People can't work together because if you can't give them a piece of paper, then they can't work with you. I mean, it's crazy. But, again, it's their ability to create their perception uh, in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of reality. But the reality doesn't square with what's really going on. It's just a perception. And the question for us has always been, as those of us who struggle politically, is how do we get people to understand that this is all a perception? This stuff, none of this stuff has any real, any real substance, but you've got to stop and think about it. Economics, when you stop and think about it, when you look at economics at its most basic level, it makes no sense at all. But in order to, in order to understand it makes no sense at all, you've got to at least stop and study it, and then it dawns on you, you know what? None of this stuff makes any sense. It's all a game. And so when we talk about economic changes that take place in society, none of this is geared toward in terms of enhancement of the economy. It's all geared toward perpetuation of power. It has nothing to do with economics, but they tell us it has to do with economics, and we buy that. And so we actually think that what they're talking about is economics. They're not talking about economics. They're talking about enhancing their power. <laughs> and we don't understand that because they create the perception, you know, that uh, – we're going to do this because it's good for the economy, so therefore that's what we're going to do. But people never understanding that what they're doing has nothing to do with the economy. It has to do with the petition with increase of power. So it's very – you're right. So they have, they have this American experiment, this ability to deceive people in and outside of America is extraordinary. So we, we, the work continues. work continues to get people to start understanding, you know, this is all the perception. You know, none of that is based on anything real. It's all a perception. And the example you raised, Brother Africa, was, 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 was perfect. You know, this piece of paper, you know what I mean? African people are not powerless in America. African people are not powerless on the continent. Get, stop giving all that power to that piece of paper. Once you stop doing that, once you free yourself, liberate yourself from that nonsense, that piece of paper gives you power, then you're free to innovate, to do the kind of things you need to do in terms of moving forward. But until we dispose of this perception, we're captive to uh, this American experiment. And the bigger deception and misconception all started with the big lie they discovered America, and they still teach us. Uh, they still teach our children that the first day of school, they discover America, and from that everything else evolved. But anyway, panelists, we're gonna have to pause for the calls. When we come back, we want y'all to give the listening audience y'all final thoughts for tonight as we wrap up the theme. What has changed? We'll be right back. You listen to Africa on the Moon. We are at war.
but we're trying to find creative ways to get rid of you. The mere fact that there's no resistance, well, there's some resistance, but there's not a maximum amount of resistance, speaks values in terms of to the extent that people have internalized the propaganda that permeates the society. Uh, we have to take a page out of the, the Yellow Vest movement in terms of beginning the process in terms of serious organization. Because without that, one thing is clear. Uh, the uh, our, our existence, uh, you know, um, uh, in this country, is going to be precarious at best. So we got to work to do. And if we really care about the children, if we really say we care about the children, then we got to start acting like we care about the children. And we got to begin to create institutions in the organization, and act, and we have to engage in a strong discourse dealing with real questions in terms of our survival in society. Anything less than that is uh, is, is, is tantamount to, to suicide. So I'll say that, and I'll say to, to, to one and all, have a good night. Thank you, Brother Hackey, for your contributions to today's program. And we now will go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that we must politically educate each other and join an organization that is working for our people's liberation. To find out more about the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, please visit our website at www.a-aprp.gc.org. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. My final thoughts for tonight is just to share with the people that Without information, you cannot think. And without organization, you cannot think clearly. We encourage you to join an organization that is working for your people. If you find any organization that don't express your desires and your interests or what you think they should be doing, then you have the responsibility to create one. An unorganized people cannot defeat an organized people. We must be organized. So if you love your people, if you love Brother Africa, I mean Brother Mother Africa, then show your love by being organized and help organize our people. We thank you again for allowing us to come home this evening. We'll see you next week at seven PM and like always we care about you. We love you. And we do it by examples, by concrete actions. Not just my words. So all I want to say is we care about you. We'll see you next week.